0: Turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. Now, my understanding is there's a Dodger playoff game tonight and a Laker playoff game tonight, right? So you're telling me that the Major League Baseball and NBA couldn't figure this out where they wouldn't have this playoffs on the same night? That's about as dumb as the presidential debate last night. Amen? Am I saying? Am I saying? How you guys, you can't get your act together where you're going to have, how about one on Thursday night and one on Wednesday night or something like that, but, um, oh yeah, forget you guys. For all you brothers that aren't here tonight watching the games, we ask the Lord that we bless you and your team would win. We also want to welcome, we got online audience right now, we're not sure how many people are actually watching, but we are online, guys, live, so uh, say hi to the guys out there online. I'll say hi to my brother Ben. I know Ben's watching online because he wasn't able to hear tonight. So anyhow, we are back. We are back, guys. The theme this year is a living hope out of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And tonight we're going to talk about, we're going to go through these first two verses, but we're going to focus tonight... On the word obedience. We're going to kind of finish with that. And of course, as we know, this book here written by Peter, they believe right around 64 AD. Uh, he's writing from what he says is Babylon, but actually it's an idiom for Rome because Rome at the time was a modern day Babylon. So he's writing from there. And the theme, and of course, as the Lord put this upon my heart, the theme is one that is so so perfect for Actually, where we are today um, as a world, it's, it's hope in the midst of suffering and persecution for the Christians, for the church and such. Not that I believe that we are in such a place that we can even compare ourselves with what these Christian brothers and sisters were going through. But uh, we are uh, dealing with um, persecution and, and oppression and, of course, a very negative tone heading towards the church, heading towards uh, Christian believers. Um, mean in the midst of this, of course, Peter encourages them to go on in patient trust. And right up front, the first thing he wants to do is encourage these believers who have been dispersed, the diaspora, they've been dispersed throughout what is now modern-day Turkey, you know, all the different things that he mentions there, the different places. But, um, of course, he's in Rome. And so he's, he's kind of focusing to the east and, of course, they're north of Jerusalem where these pilgrims, these strangers have been dispersed. And so he's ministering to them this idea of a living hope that their, their God is alive. He's not dead. He has been resurrected from the dead. And he is alive right now, brothers, in real time for us today, tonight, not only in our hearts, but he is alive in heaven as we speak. And he's resurrected, and he was resurrected to demonstrate God's power over sin and death, as we know. And this Jesus right now is there. He's he's the one who's making intercession for us, even as we are sitting here. And whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're going through, whatever trial you have in your own life, he is aware, he's praying for you, he's on your side, and he has promised that he will walk through the valley of the shadow of death, anything we're going through, hand in hand. Amen? And, of course, this living hope we have knowing that when this body, this tent, as Paul said, is put off, we are going to be with the Lord forever, in eternity, in paradise. And, and living hope is what Peter uses to encourage the believers. And, of course, they needed it. And, of course, the theme this year, every year we have a theme. And we're, we're sticking with the, uh, the bookmarks from last year the anchored bookmarks, because, guys, not only do we have a living hope, but we have the word of God that we need to stay anchored in every single day. And on the back of that uh, bookmark, what does it say? Every man, every day. Let me say that again. Every man, every, every day. day. And guys, again, we're getting back to school here. We're back. School's in session. And I encourage you and your group leaders are going to be encouraging you every day. Every day. We cannot live a day without the Word of God. We need that, that daily bread, the daily manna that feeds us, that strengthens us, that, that gives us the ability to keep fighting the good fight. The Word of God, of course, keeps us on track. It convicts us of sin. It tells us when we're getting prideful, we're becoming knuckleheads, we're doing things that aren't pleasing to God. Without it, I'm toast. I don't know about you guys, but I'm toast without it. And so we have this hope as a reminder every day that it's alive, our faith is alive, that Jesus is alive. And so the writer, of course, we know. Now, how many of you guys identify more with Peter than you do with Paul? Come on, get your hands up. Now we're all Peters, amen. We love this brother, but of course he was an apostle, um, a very prominent apostle, actually the most important apostle of the original 12 that Jesus picked. And the interesting thing about Peter, though, is he does not exercise that authority as an apostle over the people. Because even in chapter (coughs) 5, what Peter says is that to the elders who are among you, I who am a fellow elder with you. He doesn't say to the elders, I, Peter the apostle. No, no, no. He's one of the guys. But he was a leader. Some important things about Peter as we get into this book is that his name is mentioned in, mentioned in the Gospels more than anyone except the name of Jesus. Pretty neat. No one speaks in the Gospels as often as Peter did. Joseph, Jesus spoke to Peter more than any other individual. Uh, Jesus rebuked Peter more than any other disciple. Of course, we know that. And Peter was the only disciple who dared to rebuke Jesus. Love that. Peter. Uh, Peter confessed Jesus more boldly and accurately than any other disciple. Peter, of course, denied Jesus more forcefully and publicly than any others. Jesus praised Peter more than any other disciple. And Peter was the only one that Jesus addressed as Satan. Wouldn't that just be killer? Like Forever we're going to remember that. Get thee behind me who? Get behind me Satan. And Peter was the only other person to walk on water, though. He had that privilege of walking on water for about two seconds, and Peter was the one who denied Jesus three times, cursing him and swearing. Imagine that, cursing that he didn't know the man, but also Peter was the one to receive a public restoration from Jesus in front of all the other disciples as well. So what a guy this guy was, and like I said, I can identify more with Peter than Paul. Paul, to me, Seemed just a little more righteous, a little more like, you know, that pharisaical part of him walking. But Peter was more um, quick to speak, slow to think, putting his foot in his mouth. Um, and yet he was full of passion and zeal, um, doing whatever. I mean, he's the one that cut off the year of Malchus. Anybody have that kind of attitude out there? Yeah, come on. You know it. Um, but, of course, Peter, we love him. Great. I mean, he wrote, of course, book, First Peter and Second Peter. But Peter, of course, he was named um, Peter by Jesus. That's his Greek name. Cephas was his Aramaic name. His real name was Simon. And, of course, this word means a stone, petros, a fragment of a much larger rock. Now, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, it spoke of the fact that he was a special messenger. And, of course, apostle just means sent one. But it was used to to, uh, designate the, the original 12. They were apostles. Of course, Paul used it a little bit more loosely in his books, speaking of those they were apostles who saw the resurrected Jesus and then were also commissioned by him, Paul, of course, being one of those. And so if there's people out there today that are calling themselves apostles, they're not the apostles of the Mormon church, they're not apostles. They're just using that title, they're using that name, really, as far as I'm concerned, as a way of kind of um, a prideful type of a thing, like Bishop, I'm a bishop so-and-so. I'm the apostle so-and-so who's got a church up the street on Crenshaw, you know. Won't, won't mention any names here. But um, So it was really, um, it's the, the office of apostle um, ended when those guys all were martyred and died. So he was an apostle, but also the, the recipients to the pilgrims, strangers, aliens of dispersion. And, of course, Peter, this apostle of Jesus Christ, Speaking, first off, to the pilgrims, those who were scattered in the dispersion. And here's a phrase that he used, this word diaspora, the scattered. And I believe that Peter uses this as a way of encouraging the Jewish believers. Who else would know what that word meant? And, of course, that word was originally used back when the children of Israel went through the various exiles, of course, the greatest one being into Babylon, when they were dispersed. They were the diaspora dispersed up there under the leadership and kingship of Nebuchadnezzar. They were scattered due to the persecution. And for the believers in Peter's time, they had been scattered because of the persecution from the Jews and also the persecution that was beginning to happen in a much more radical way under Nero, the emperor at the time. Now, 64 AD, when they believe this book was written, in July of 64 AD is when Nero, if you remember what did he do to Rome? He started the fire on Rome. He wanted to rebuild Rome. And so he thought, well, probably, you know, a good way to get this done. Well, Let's get it going quick. He lit the fire. Well, of course, the people weren't happy. So the, the people in government there, what they did, they came up with the idea, you know what, we're going to start blaming this on the Christians. They'll become the scapegoat. And just like how the Germans maligned the Jewish people by just completely... Speaking a lie, if you speak a lie long enough, people begin to believe it, and they begin to believe that the Christians had a part in this, and yet Nero was the one who did it. But also to prove that it really was the Christians who started this fire, well, we got to persecute them, we got to kill them. And you've probably read stories about Nero, how in his craziness would take Christians and, and put them on a stake and dip them in tar wax, whatever, and he would light them on fire, and he would ride his chariots through his gardens, they say naked, screaming and yelling like a madman. Well, this persecution was some serious persecution. Now, it kind of cracks me up because you've heard a lot of people out there in the place where the church is today, and they're saying that the government is persecuting the church. Brothers and sisters, brothers, and I'm speaking long line as well, though. We are not being persecuted. And when we get to heaven, we're going to have to apologize to those believers there. They're going to walk up to say, so tell me what your persecution was. You, you didn't have air conditioning out in the tent and it was 80 degrees, huh? That's bad. That's tough. Oh, oh wait. What? Well, you, you can't meet inside the sanctuary. You got to meet outside in the parking lot. And so you're being persecuted. Oh, that's, that's pretty tough, brothers. We're not being persecuted at all, you guys. We're not being singled out. And those churches and those pastors that are that are preaching that false idea that we're under persecution from the government, it's not true. This is the persecution. This is persecution. Being chased out of your imagine we're here in, in South Bay, and the government and the religious leaders say whatever church might be, they come and they become and they're and they're coming to your house and they're gonna kill you and your family. And you gotta run. And family members are Are hung, they're shot, they're killed, whatever. That's persecution, brothers. So these ones here, Paul, I mean, Peter wants to encourage them, an audience clearly Jewish, but also there were Gentiles that were being saved because of the phrases that, that Peter uses. And of course, remember it was Peter to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles. And he uses this phrase, I believe, as a way of encouraging them. They would identify with their forefathers, the guys. Because really, the, the Jews becoming Christians, they had the complete package. That's what it was all about. God came to the Jews first. He came to that nation to be the nation that he would reveal himself to and through. And that in the process of time, of course, that was always what was considered the mystery that not only did he come to the Jews, but he came to the whole world. So that the whole world might come to know him. And in this idea where he talks about the elect that they were the chosen. That's what he's speaking of. Chosen or elect by the foreknowledge of God. God had a plan to come to the Jewish nation to use them to be the one that would represent him to the world. And, of course, they did that. And so this nation, this people group that God would introduce himself to, they were chosen. And, of course, in this idea, these that were out there dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, like we said, this area north of Jerusalem, East of Rome, where Peter was. That's who the recipients were. And of course, um, this persecution that we talked about. Now, we understand that persecution happens. But of course, God allowing persecution. And persecution for the church is actually always a good thing. We think about how the church actually grew. Back there in the first century church. When they were sent out. When, when, when Jesus, when he was ascending to heaven when he told his, his disciples, you know what, you're going to be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts. Well, how are they going to get to the uttermost parts? God was going to bring a hammer. God was going to bring the persecution and allow that persecution to get the people to get out of Jerusalem, out of their little comfort zones, and go throughout the whole world to spread the gospel. And of course, for us, persecution... It's, it's used by God to help us to keep a light touch. We are pilgrims, you guys. You got to look at your Christian walk. We're pilgrims. We're just passing through. We might be gone tonight. That we're not to keep a tight rein on the things of this earth. Yeah, we live here. We got to move. We got to live. We have our being in this place. But you know what? This is not our home. Where's our home? Heaven. Say that again. Where's our home? Heaven. heaven. Paradise. We're citizens of heaven. We're dual citizens in a sense. And so we got to be those that remember that that's that's the whole deal about this persecution. And, of course, he says here, to the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Of course, according to the, the elect, according, this means, of course, that God in his so- sovereignty He chose the nation, as I said, the children of Israel, to be the ones that through Abraham, the salvation would come first. And, of course, to become obedient to him, in faith and believing. And, of course, the cool thing in this passage, we see a wonderful picture of the Trinity. The elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So we understand that God had the plan from the beginning. And, of course, the Holy Spirit, as we know from John chapter 16, He was sent to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, And of judgment. So the spirit draws. He convicts of sin. We realize our shortcoming. This process of sanctification. And then of course through Jesus. Through his blood that was shed. The sprinkling is the forgiveness of, of our sins. And of course it speaks of Jesus being predetermined. In verse 20 and 21 of our chapter. If you turn the page there. Indeed he was foreordained before the foundation of the world. But was manifest in these last times for you. Here it is. Who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So this predetermined plan, this foreknowledge of God, having picked Jesus, of course, to be the one to come. And as we look at this, even Acts chapter two twenty three says that Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, this plan that God had from the beginning. And as Christians, of course, we apply this verse to ourselves. We have been chosen. God chose us for salvation. And it's a wonderful thing to think that God would choose us sinners for salvation, but it was all a part of his plan. And Jesus, of course, he is the propitiation. He is the means by which we can be saved. So God chose us to be saved. He chose us, and the plan was that Jesus, of course, coming, to be the one who would die for our sins on the cross so that we could have salvation. In this predetermined plan of God, God chose man before the foundation of the world to be saved and to become his all through the predetermined plan that God had to send his son to die for us on the cross, giving us salvation. And of course, as many of you guys know and realize that verse 2 has been the focus of a doctrinal divide for centuries. And this, of course, is that whole doctrine of election and and, uh, predestination and such. And it's pretty simple, actually, as far as I'm concerned. We see that here, Peter, I don't believe he was introducing this doctrine of election and predetermination and such. In writing these things, it was man who sat there and tried to figure this thing out because it's simple. It's simple. Did God know that you and I would be here tonight? We have to say yes. But how did God know that we would be here tonight? Because he is God, he is sovereign. And of course, we know the scripture says that God knows the end from the beginning. So we have been chosen for salvation. How did God know that we would get saved? He knew that we would get saved because he knew the end. He knew the end from the beginning. And so we have been chosen for salvation, but God also knew that we would choose him. And of course, Calvinists, Look at this whole passage, this whole doctrine of theirs, Calvinism. And basically, the bottom line with Calvinists is basically, you know, Bob, you were chosen for salvation, but Brett, back there, you're wasting your time, so you might as well go home and watch the game because you weren't chosen for salvation. That's the bottom line that comes when, when they equate this thing out. And then you have the Arminianists, Jacob Arminian, who basically you know, refuted the doctrine of Calvinism that began back, actually, with Augustine. And that began this process of the whole thing. And, and really, it's, it's, um, it's a rabbit hole, if you ask me. We have the Calvary Distinctives on the table back there. Pastor Jeff does a great job of, of talking about Calvinism, refuting it. Because ultimately, with Calvary Chapel, we are in the middle there somewhere. We believe that, yes, God chose us, but we believe that man we had to choose God as well. And it's like this. I hear Pastor Chuck kind of gave this description, okay? Imagine what you would do if you knew tomorrow, today. All right? So you're a resourceful person. You're thinking, you know what? The lotto is being played tomorrow. So I know what the lotto winning numbers are for tomorrow. So I'm going to go down to my local store, and I'm going to pick my lotto ticket, and I'm going to pick the numbers that... No, the don't win. <laughs> Stupid, right? I would pick the numbers that win. Or, for example, if you're a betting man and you know the games that are going on tonight, you already know who won. And so you, you ran off to Vegas before the game started, and you got there, and you know what? I know who's going to win tonight. The Lakers are going to win. The Dodgers are going to win. I'm going to bet on that. Why? Because I've already seen the end of the game. Would you go to Vegas and bet on Miami or bet on the other team that the Dodgers are playing? No, you wouldn't. And I know that Chuck, Chuck Smith would use the analogy of going to Santa Anita. I don't know if he ever, like, that's where he hung out, but uh, if you knew who was going to win the races tomorrow, would you go and pick the winners or the losers? The example is there. God, who saw the end from the beginning, saw that we would be saved, that we would choose him, so he chose us. And that's what that means, this whole election thing. And it's kind of crazy that it's gone to such a a ridiculous thing because really me personally I see it ultimately as another way that the enemy has used to divide the church because the reformed church you know what sad to say those the the reformed church Calvinists, they truly believe that what they believe is the only way there's no room for people like us here at Calvary Chapel because we're not quite as deep as they are We're not quite, it's almost a a form of modern day Gnosticism. It's like a little bit of a, a spiritual club. Like, come to the Reformed Church. Come and we'll teach you really what the scriptures mean. The deeper insight. Let me ask you this. Peter's writing this letter from Rome, getting ready to die. Do you think he honestly is putting in this letter something that really ultimately, well, you know what? We'll wait till these theologians figure this whole thing out. And probably by maybe the 15th century, the Reformation and such, they'll they'll have it together, and then people will, will truly get saved this way. Do you really think Peter was writing this way? I don't understand. A lot of times, guys, I look at scripture and I hear what's taught, I hear what people say about it, what commentators write about it. But I believe personally we're going to get to heaven, and a lot of the, the writers are going to come and say, you know what? I wasn't talking about that at all. Where did you get that idea? I was simply saying, hey, God chose you to be saved through Jesus. Not all this other nonsense that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books have been written on and people have debated and fought over and got all excited about. Calvary Chapel, we believe that the truth lies in the the extreme, in the middle of both these extreme positions. We call it balance. And we are happy and fine with that. But he goes on here, elect according to the foreknowledge of God in sanctification of the Spirit. Okay, here we go again. This, of course, means that that we are set apart, we have been set apart by the power and the work of the Spirit. And just like the instruments in the temple, and again here, Peter writing to the Jews, inserting a lot of information on really, basically, the Jewish religion. This idea of being set apart This idea of being sanctified, of course, by the blood, and of course the instruments in the temple—they were to be used for one purpose, and one purpose only. And when we get saved, God, who sent His Son to redeem us, to pay the ransom for us, He bought us. He bought us for one reason and one reason only—to be used by Him in the world. Not to be used by the devil for the things of the world. And so, of course, in this idea, this plan that God had, he has no other plan for us except to be vessels of honor. Now, the interesting thing, that's God's plan. He made the choice to have me a vessel of honor. I'm sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. I'm cleansed. I'm, I'm ready for the work. But I have to make a choice because I can choose to be a vessel of dishonor myself. And that's what this whole idea of free will is is about. We have a free will, guys. We can choose to serve God or we can choose not to serve God. We can choose to be vessels of honor or not. When Bob Coy committed adultery in the pulpit years ago, he chose, he made a decision right then and there to become a vessel of dishonor, thus disqualifying himself from the ministry All the while, though, he was chosen by God for salvation, and he was saved. And yet he made a choice. And, of course, this idea of of this choice and why we have been sanctified is for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And, of course, this obedience, man, my throat is dry from this smoke and such. As a result of this salvation, he has set us apart for obedience, you guys. When we think about that, we have been chosen for obedience. That's part of what this whole plan of salvation is about. Yes, God saved us that we might have eternal life in heaven. But he saved us to be obedient to his word that he might use us for his kingdom in the world. If I'm not being obedient to God's word, I can't be used by him. If I'm doing my own thing, if I'm being this vessel of dishonor, God can't use me. Actually, what happens is the devil uses me more in, for his kingdom than God uses for his kingdom. Does that make sense to you guys? So for obedience and sprinkling the blood of Jesus Christ, and of course, it's the blood that cleansed us, making us useful for him. And just remember, as the instruments in the temple, what were they sprinkled with before they were used? The blood, always the blood. And so ultimately, we're chosen for him for salvation through faith to be obedient to the word. And obedience, of course, is what I want to focus on because we have the choice to obey. And what I see happening and what has happened in this whole thing with the the COVID and such is that men of God have chosen to disregard what God's word says clearly and defy this, this government that has told us that we can't meet inside, that we are being persecuted. And I'm, I'm kind of going off here on a little bit of a, a soapbox. And yet it, it amazes me, you know, we all know about what's going on with MacArthur and everything. When you read MacArthur's commentaries on our book in chapter 2, verse 13 through 18 or 17, and you read the commentary on, on Romans chapter 13... He does a masterful job, a wonderful job, and the crazy thing is how that commentary reads is exactly what Calvary Chapel South Bay is responding to. We are are adhering to the Word of God as the the Word of God was written. And the funny thing is you could read that passage. I'm sure you guys have read it. You can let your 10-year-old read that passage and say, okay, tell me, what does that say to you? Oh, that means that we're supposed to obey what the governing authorities tell us to do. Simple as it can be. And yet the sad thing is, men of God are changing their positions, they're changing their interpretations of passages of scriptures that they taught on years before to suit themselves. They've come up with this idea, and they've pulled out of Acts verse chapter 4, where Peter tells the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, whether it's right in the sight of God or man to obey Man, you be the judge, but we're going to obey God. They're using that. I've heard countless pastors use that for their reasoning to say no to Newsom. Now, when you go to that chapter in Acts chapter 4, it is clear. It has nothing to do with the Roman government. It had to do with the religious people. And I use this analogy. It'd be like the Pope there in, in Italy, and he hears about a, a diocese over here that's, that's teaching about this guy named Jesus. Of course, they would be teaching about Jesus, but I'm using this illustration. And the Pope, and then find out, the big religious leaders find out about it and say, wait a minute, we don't want you guys talking about that, that Jesus guy. You know, we, we've got our way of lining this up, we've got our way of teaching, this is what you're supposed to do, so you're going to stop doing what you're doing. And the diocese and the priests that are here in this area decide to say, you know what, Pope, we ain't doing it. Come on on. (laughs) out. You know, that's the idea here. Had nothing to do with the Roman government. And so, guys, we got to be careful. Because if you and I, after reading God's word, and we have received it and it's interpreted this way and we believe it says this, but now we're going to, because things are maybe different in the culture... Or things are different in the world. Or I just kind of feel a little bit different about the idea that I'm only supposed to have one wife. Because in the Old Testament, what David had wives and and Jacob had wives. And, you know, if I begin to start interpreting, or I should say, reinterpreting the scriptures, I'm going down a path of destruction. Because where does it stop, brothers? Where does it stop? I know that's an extreme example, but where does it stop? And so for us tonight, we're going to talk about this idea of obedience, because that's what we were chosen for. We were sprinkled with the blood of Jesus to be cleansed, to be purified, to be used by God, to be obedient to his word. So number one is we have the uh, notes up there on the screen. One, two, three, maybe coming up. There we go. Number one, the necessity of obedience, okay? We are the elect according to his foreknowledge for obedience. And guys, obedience to me is the fruit of my salvation. It's the evidence. A lot of times you ask, how do I know I'm saved? How do I know that I'm saved? Well, I'm telling you what, being obedient to the word of God, to the best of your God-given, spirit-filled abilities is proof. Number one, it demonstrates that I know him when I obey God. 1 John 2, 3, now by this we know that we know him. If we what, we do what we want, and we interpret the scripture the way we want. No, why we keep His commands. The necessity, guys. It's so important for us to understand that obedience is a huge part of being a Christian man. It is what it's about. Jesus was obedient to what? To death on the cross. He could have said, "Wait, he time out. God, the Father, Holy Spirit. Why me? Whoa, oh, oh, whoa, oh, whoa. Let's 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 change the plan." No. He was obedient to his heavenly Father. It demonstrates that I know, number two, it demonstrates our love for God. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and shut off the phones. (coughs) And my father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Demonstrates my love, John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, you guys. How many people here love God? We all love God. How do I demonstrate that? Man, Lord, I want to be obedient to what Your Word says. It demonstrates that I know Him. It demonstrates our love for God. But number three, it also it brings forth blessings from God. Can I get an amen to that, amen. man? You think about your own kids. When your kids are obedient. By the way, newsflash. I have to say this about my shirt. I forgot this. It says Grandpa established April 21. My uh, my son, Eric, and his wife, Natalie, who happens to be Pastor Dave's daughter, are pregnant. We're going to have a grand baby in April of next year. So woo! excited about that. It brings forth blessings. <laughs> and, of course, it does. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, we see this passage, this chapter, is, is speaks of the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. And Moses, in this passage, is telling the people, man... God promised so many blessings to the nation of Israel if you would just obey my word. Now it shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you today that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And in Revelation 22, John tells us that we obey. He says, blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter through the gates into the city. But the outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters who love and practice lies, who are disobedient to the word of God. So it brings forth blessings, but also... It's the way that we please God. God is pleased when we obey him. Your own kids. That's what I was talking about with my grandkids. When your kids are obedient to what you say, you ask them to do, do your chores, do your homework, whatever, whatever it is, you bless them. You give them allowance. You let them eat at your table. You, you let them open the refrigerator door. Just kidding there. But you bless your kids. And when the same thing with God. There's, there's And now it's not obedience unto salvation but it's obedience in line of what God's plan is for our life because we love him, because he has blessed us. It's the way we please him, 1 John three twenty two, And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And without obedience, guys, I cannot please God. And then lastly, number five, it's the way Jesus glorified his Father in heaven, John seventeen four. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work. And Jesus was obedient to the death of the cross, bringing glory to his Father. So we see the necessity of obedience, but now number two, the consequences for disobedience. Now you might have heard it said that 99% obedience is what? Head-on collision collision with God. 99% just don't cut it, brothers. It's 100% or it's not. And of course the consequences for disobedience is that we we it's a hindrance to his blessings and also a hindrance to our fellowship with him. In Isaiah 119, Isaiah writes that if you are willing and obedient you shall eat the good of the land. But but if you refuse and rebel you shall be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He warned them, he warned them, he warned them. Guys, just do what I tell you to do. Just do what my word says, and it'll be so well for you. And, of course, it went well with the nation of Israel. But what would they do? They'd get blessed, they'd be right on with God, and then they'd decide, every man doing that, which is right in his own eyes, off again, serving the bowels, serving the other gods, and the God would have to come in, take him to the woodshed, a little spanking. But it hinders the blessings, but also, number two, it brings a falling away from God. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 11. We're going to go over and we're going to read the story here about Solomon. And this is, again, the consequences for disobedience. Guys, when we go down this road of disobedience, it's just a matter of time that we're going to fall away from God. Now, here in 1 Kings chapter 11, This is the story of Solomon in his older age as the kingdom is about ready to be taken away from him. And this this passage, of course, the end of Solomon's life, it speaks about how he had turned away from obeying God and his commands. And it's one of the most tragic passages of Scripture in Scripture. When we see this, this kid who was chosen by God and was so humble that all he asked God for was wisdom, but God saw his heart, and he was, of course, David's son. Man, I can't take, i might got some huge shoes to fill. What am I going to do? God give me wisdom. God not only gives him wisdom, but he gives him riches and abundance and such. He started off great, you guys. And when you read the book of Proverbs, you see that he's writing to his own sons what he learned from his dad, what he learned from the Holy Spirit. And the book of Proverbs is just amazing in the writings in, in the, the depth, the insight that Solomon had. And yet, as we see in this passage, we'll read here, Solomon himself did not adhere to the things that he wrote, to his own writings for his sons. The Proverbs that we read, he didn't adhere to them. In this falling away, starting in verse 1 of chapter 11, we see here, first off, that, that falling away, Starts when there's a disobedience to God's command. Verse 1 and 2. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord has said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods, And what does it say there? Solomon clung to these in love. Now, it's interesting. He says love, but actually the word should be what? Lust. I mean, who needs 700 of them on top of 300? So we see that Solomon had a problem with all this. Of course, we know a lot of those were military, but it was still. Solomon knew the commands. He knew from his childhood he was raised in the word. He knew the commands, yet he clung to these. And the thing about it is he he chose you guys to disobey. He rejected the Proverbs, his own teachings, as he got older. And disobedience to God's command, guys, will cause you to fall, fall away. But also, number three, he was influenced by the world. And this course came through his wives. In verse three, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. And I always look at David and Solomon in comparison. Of course, we know that, that David had a heart after God. And it seems to me that Solomon had a mind after the things of God. And there's a huge difference. See, in my mind, I can serve the Lord. But a lot of times I throw in my own intellect and my own ideas, my own thoughts. <clears throat> and the things of the earth kind of creep in. But if I have a heart after God, man, my heart broken before the Lord as David did. He was, as it said, he had a heart after God and he served God and loved God. Man, that is, for me, it's so much more important to have the heart. So he was influenced so by the world. That's how I see this. And, of course, you think about the influences of this world. They're huge on our lives. Look around this world. Look at, we see the TV. We see the, the media, the news, the politics, the sports, the music, all these things. This, this impact that if we allow these things to creep in and, and eventually crowd out anything of the Lord before you know it, you're at home watching the Dodgers, you're at home watching the Lakers. And not Not here. That's just a little joke, little slam on my brother's. But I'm telling you, the world, you guys, the influence, we've got to be so careful. And, of course, the devil is of the world, and the world is of the devil, and we've got to be mindful of the schemes to be caught up in these things. And Solomon, of course, he got influenced by the world, by his wives. But number three, of course, verse 4 through 8, we see that he followed after other gods. And, and I'm not going to read this list here, but this list of the gods, Ashtoreth, Milcom, Chemosh, Molech, my gosh. When you read of what the worship of these gods entailed. Asterisk, the goddess, essential love. Well, that makes sense. 700 wives, maternity, and fertility. Milcom, the national god of the Ammonites. Chemosh, the national deity of the Moabites. Honored, here it is, with the horrible cruel rites where children were sacrificed in the fire. I wonder if it's recorded somewhere or... Someone has an idea how many children Solomon allowed to have burned in the fire. Now with 700 wives, 300 concubines, he had some kids. It's sick when you think about it. Moloch, a Semitic deity honored by the same thing, by the sacrifice of children in which they were caused to pass through or into the fire. And I've written this down here. You've got to ask yourself, man, Solomon, what were you thinking? Where did this come from? How did this happen? And we think about our own lives. We think about brothers that we know that have fallen, that have turned away from God. And we ask ourselves, how did this happen? How, how did Solomon allow this to happen when he knew the word? And, and I think what happens, guys, is that the longer we walk with Christ... If we don't have a heart for Him, that slowly but surely, our heart comes cold. And we begin to turn from the things of God, and and we go towards the things that really are of this world that that bring maybe pleasure, that bring the temporal happiness, that bring things that aren't of God into our lives. Before you know it, we're going down this road, we're chasing after things, Marriages fall apart, jobs fall apart, we get into drugs, we get into alcohol, we get into adulterous relationships, whatever it is, and life is destroyed. So this falling away, of course, it starts with the disobedience to the commands and, and being influenced by the world. Then we start chasing after the other gods. What are the gods of this world? What are the little gods that we're chasing after? Is it money? Is it power? possessions. Is it the big one, the big P for men, pornography, the lust that's there that is fueled every single day you walk out into this world, guys? It's fueled every time you turn that cell phone on. There's junk, trash that is available with a swipe of the finger. Amazing. What are the gods, you guys? Could it be sports? I know I'm hammering sports tonight. But I'm telling you, it's an idol. People are worshiping sports idols. We've got to be careful, guys. He followed after other gods in verse 9 through 10, though. It was the end, the falling away. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. Think about that. I mean, the writer throws that in, the Holy Spirit throws that in. You know what? He just wasn't like, okay, you know, he grew up in a godly family, you know, father stumbled a little bit, but you know. No, God appeared to him twice, spoke to him twice. And yet, and he had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant, and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. And you continue reading the story. You know the story. The, the nation split. The ten tribes went here, two over here with his son. And, of course, never to be reconciled until modern day times. Becoming lukewarm, brothers. And disobedience comes before the falling away. And disobedience, guys, opens the door for more disobedience. Be mindful of that, guys. And again, it's not obedience for salvation. It's obedience as proof and as a result of my salvation. So you got to ask yourself an honest question, an examination, so to speak, of your own hearts, your own lives. You know, how am I doing with obeying God's word? And if I'm struggling, if I'm stumbling, if I'm having problems, then there's, there's, there's proof, there's evidence. Something is wrong. Something's wrong with your walk. Not that it can't be fixed. God is so merciful. Psalm 84, I believe it says that he's, sitting, he's ready to forgive right now. He's just waiting. All you got to do is ask. All you got to do is turn. He told the nation, just turn. Turn back to me. Come, let us reason t- together. Man, though your sins are as scarred, they'll be as white as snow. God has that plan for you guys. If you're in that place, maybe you're, you're right on the edge of the cliff. You're just about ready to do something that's, that is as foolish as can be, and yet you're, you're deceived. You don't see it. You don't know what's happening in your own life. That's where there's accountability. That's why Bob's going to get up here in a minute, and we're going to talk about going into groups and such where you have other brothers around you that you meet with week after week. They get to know you. They can say to you, man, hey, Joe, how you doing? Hey, Joe, you don't look like, man, the Holy Spirit. And, and God can use other men to help you, to help me. Because would God, you guys see something in my life or the other pastors see something in my life, and they, they see, man, you're headed for trouble. Man, come and talk and help. Because we're all subject to it, guys. man. Going off in this thing here. But also the powerful obedience. Number three, you guys, where do we get the power or the ability to obey Him? Because that's where we're at right now. Okay, great. You know, I might be struggling. I need some help here. So how do we do it? How do we obey Him? Number one, of course, the love we have for God. Why is it that you stay with your wives? You love them, you love your wives. When, I, when, when me and my wife were going through all the problems before we got saved, my love for my kids was so great that I couldn't look at them and say, I'm going to put them through the same hell that I went through when my parents divorced. I love them. I love my wife. You love your God. For the love of Christ, you guys, compels us or controls us. John fourteen twenty three. Jesus said, If anyone loves me, He will keep my word. So the power for obedience, man, my love. Okay, well, maybe my love isn't doing so well. Well, what's next? Well, secondly, is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, Psalm 111.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and a good understanding of all those who do his commandments. And guys, this is a huge problem in the church. There is a serious lack of the fear of the Lord. And what is the fear of the Lord? It's a reverence and it's an awe and it's a respect that God who knows everything about you, God who knows what you're doing, God who sees what's happening in secret, God who knows your mind, your heart, your thoughts, who controls your very life, who controls your breath, who controls the beat of your heart. The man, if I mess up, he could go like this. Not only if I mess up, he could pull his hand off of my life and say, okay, you're not listening anymore, so I'm going to have to allow you to endure this. The nation of Israel is a perfect example. How many times, how many times did God say, all right, you're on your own. And they came, the nations wiped them out. God restored, God was always there. But there's a serious lack of the fear of the Lord, you guys. As Christian men, do you fear God in a good healthy, spiritual way, recognizing that, I mean, we're playing with God here. And God will not be mocked. And thank God, he is, he is merciful, he is gracious, he is slow to anger. He speaks, guys, he speaks. He's speaking to you now, he's speaking to somebody now, there's no doubt. There's something going on in your life, he knows about it. And you came here tonight. There was a reason you came here tonight. It was specifically for God to say, look, I know what's going on. And if you don't stop it, if you don't turn, if you don't change your ways, I'm pulling the covers. I'm pulling the covers. And I've seen it even on staff here at Calvary Chapel South Bay time and time again. Where men, and it's really it has been mainly the men, are doing something and they're not supposed to be doing something, has to do usually with sexual immorality of some sort, whatever. And God's speaking, God's warning, and God's speaking, talking, talking, talking. Wood. Thick scold. And so God begins to turn up the heat and then God sends other people to talk to you and warn you. And there's people coming around saying things and yeah, yeah, nah, nah, nah. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, 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 fine. And then God finally just, you know what? Covers are pulled, literally, and their sin is found out. Serious lack of the fear of the Lord. Number three, though, the power for the obedience is, though, the fear of the Lord. Power for obedience, of course, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, guys. And we know this. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, upon Epi in the baptism, to overwhelm you, to fill you, to overflow you with his power And then you should be my witnesses. Then you'll be able to be obedient to him. See, before the baptism, before the Pentecost, Peter had no power. He had flesh. He operated in his flesh to the point where he cussed, he cursed, to the point of telling the people around him, I don't know this Jesus. I don't know this Jesus. You know what I'm saying? No power until the Holy Spirit fell upon him. And then, of course, he stood up and he preached Jesus and he followed Jesus all the way till his death. And, of course, the power of the Holy Spirit, guys, that's the key. I need the Holy Spirit. I need the baptism. We've talked much about that. We've given given opportunity for people to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's that area where you take the plunge, you jump in, you absolutely surrender to the power of God saying, Lord, I'm yours I surrender. I'm in the back seat. You're driving. You take me where you want to go. So it's the baptism. But also, lastly, number four, guys, and and really what it comes down to, even this whole idea of choice, it's the choice we must make. Because no matter what, guys, God is not going to force you to do anything. Holy Spirit will do this and do this And warn over here and speak over here and cause circumstances happen over here all the while trying to corral me to keep me between the lines. And guys, as we said, the word of God is what is is there for to keep me going down the straight and narrow path. Holy Spirit speaking. But I'm not forced to read God's word. God doesn't wake up in the morning yanking me out of bed, putting a gun to my head saying, okay, read, 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 read. Nobody's forcing us to do anything. I must make the choice every single moment of my life to follow after Jesus, to be obedient to his command. It's a choice. Of course, we know 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul says that God is faithful to provide a way for us to bear up under temptation, but I got to choose to go God's way when the temptation's there. God has done his part. God will do his part but I must do my part as well. Remember the story of Joseph with Potiphar's wife, and I'm be wrapping up right here. What time is it, anyhow? Ha! Plenty of time. Remember Joseph, okay? What did Joseph have to do when Potiphar's wife came after him? I mean, he could have sat there and said, help, help, Jesus, help, help. And maybe in his heart he did. But what did he do? He turned and ran, brothers. He got up and put on the Nikes and out the door. And sometimes that's exactly what we got to do. You know, oftentimes we cry out to God, help me, God, help me, God, help me, God. He's helping you. He's yelling at you. Turn off the computer. Throw your phone in the trash. Get out of that girl's office. Quit flirting with the girl at the check. I mean, he's telling you, but you got to do it. You've got to do it. I mean, it would be nice if we could just kind of push the autopilot button and just walk through life and not a thing's going to happen to me because God is doing everything for me. No. The power for obedience, guys, ultimately comes down to the choice that I must make. And as Joshua concluded his book with the Israelites, what did he say to them? 24 15. Choose this day whom you will serve. God had chosen them. God had made the way for them. God had blessed them. Showing them amazing, incredible things. God did his part, but they still had to make the choice to choose to follow him. And of course, brothers, in this whole passage of scripture here going back to 1 Peter chapter 1, of course, we are the elect, chosen According to God's foreknowledge, in sanctification of the spirits, for obedience. For obedience, guys. And that's what God wants in our lives. And of course, as we continue to walk, as we continue to grow in Christ, as we continue to love Him and serve Him, um, there's a greater desire in my heart to serve and obey His word. because we all know, we all know, when I obey God's word and do, does what He says. Hey, doesn't mean my life's going to be perfect. There isn't going to be trials. Those are, we'll talk about that next week in this living hope. But man, what happens in your life? But I can easily choose to disobey God. And I have done that and you've done that. And we have suffered the consequences. And it's a mess. But thank God he loves to clean up our messes. Amen? Because he is faithful. And he does provide the way out. So let's pray, guys. And then Bob's going to come up, Father. Again, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the start of this men's study. Thank you, Lord, that you chose us, Lord, predetermined, predestined for salvation through Jesus. Lord, we are so thankful for that. And God, we ask that you would continue to speak and minister. I pray for all these men here tonight, even in this area of obedience, Lord. I know Holy Spirit, you're speaking. You've spoken, Lord. I pray for any man that's here tonight if they're struggling in some area. Lord, remind them even now as you tap them on the shoulder that you're for them, you're on your side. You love them so much that you don't want them to go down a path of destruction. You don't want them to fall away. You don't want them to be a Solomon. And so, Lord, I pray you would encourage them this night to maybe grab a brother here tonight, maybe a group leader, and just maybe confess to them, hey, pray for me. I'm in trouble in this area. And, Lord, we know that you're faithful when we confess our sins, even one to another, Lord. You're faithful. You're just to forgive, cleanse, and to strengthen us in our walk with you, Lord. So bless, we pray. Thank you for what you're doing. We ask to pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's men said, Amen. amen. All right, brothers.